13. And the whole point of that song is simply to the fact that we cannot measure the love that we receive from God. And so we've been going through Genesis and looking at a little bit of just the series of Let's Begin. And in 2017, just uh, what is taking place, Let's Begin. And if you've been following along, last um, week we talked about women and uh, the importance of that role. And, uh, and then this week we're going to look at who is to blame. Because oftentimes, as in historically in the Bible, it talks about the creation of male, female, and then it says... Um, the fall. Something bad happens when you get men and women together, I think, because uh, there was a fall. But uh, um, it's always who's to blame. So maybe if, uh, you know, in your household, it's her fault or his fault or, hey, guess what? It's the kid's fault. And um, that's what we're going to look at, uh, who is to blame. So turn, if you would, to Genesis and um, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read it in just a second, but um, we're going to go through and look at a couple things about blame. When you think about blame, it's easy to blame. And so this first one, it says, if at first you don't succeed, shift the blame, change the rules, redirect the focus of your critics, spin the media, redefine success, and there won't be any need to try again. So a kind of corporate world. But here's another one we have. It's uh, if you wear a t-shirt, it says, I didn't say it was your fault. I said I was going to blame you. And then another one here, got a couple here. So this one, uh, if you like pets, but it says, no matter what you've done wrong, always try to make it look like the dog did it. <clears throat> and then uh, one more, the last one here, it says, well, Dad, my grades would be, um, well, I'll get it, my guess would be the heredity played a part in those bad grades. So, you know, when it's, you know, something going wrong, you just blame the genes, and so... But uh, just a few humorous anecdotes in regards to the blame and what the blame is. But as we go on, we're gonna be, I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 3. And it's actually a little bit lengthy passage. And we're not going to be looking at um, all of it today. But we're going to be talking about the temptation and the fall of mankind. So Genesis chapter 3, if you would, follow along as I read. Now I'll read out of the New King James. And as I try to express too, sometimes I'll read it out of the Holman Christian so if it's a little different, bear with me. But I just simply want you to hear it from a different perspective. They're good translations. Um, so here we go. Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then God said, then, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall not eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it were you taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out of this he drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Shall we open in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would direct our thoughts, help your, um, us to just receive your word and the Spirit of God to help remind us of how we are to live and how we even arrived at this uh, predicament, if you will. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the promise that you have given to us of eternal life. And we thank you that um, you have given us truth. Help us to understand and to respond to what you have revealed to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So if you think about, as we look at who is to blame, oftentimes that is the premise that we start with. And if I were to ask you who is to blame, if I were to say, is Adam to blame? Maybe he's to blame, or the serpent. Um, maybe the serpent's to blame, or maybe it's Adam. Or what if I say it's Eve, or the man? Or what if I say it's God? Because some people would say God is the one. What if I were to say, if not them, Satan, or even God, allowing it to occur, does that make God the author of evil? Because we've heard people say, well, God must be the author of evil because he caused it to occur. And within the circles of philosophy and apologetics, we must be careful because discussions like these, um, often arguments as well, they lead to an incorrect premise. And what I mean by that is they start with an, a question, which is a double bind. And a double bind is, especially in psychology, is an unresolvable premise. So if you've ever been in an unresolvable dilemma, and a dilemma is a situation in which a person receives contradictory messages from a person who is more powerful, and the dilemma is a situation necessitating a choice between two equal and especially undesirable alternatives. And here, the danger is sometimes these two unresolvable 
um, solutions can both be wrong. So if you think about that, you're already, you do not have a solution. If you've ever played the game, Would You Rather? Have you ever heard of that game, Would You Rather? Well, let me introduce you a little bit to Would You Rather, okay? So the first thing is, Would You Rather? And up here it says, Would You Rather Be Itchy for the Rest of Your Life or Sticky for the Rest of Your Life? Now, I'll be honest, both of those are, if you think about it, irreconcilable. I wouldn't want to be either. The next one we have up there is, would you rather be alone for the rest of your life or always be surrounded by annoying people? And maybe you're thinking, I'm already surrounded by annoying people. <laughs> the last one here is, uh, would you rather your clothes be always two sizes too big or one size too small? See, if you think about the and <laughs> These are kind of dilemmas where, well, I would rather not have either. And they make you pick between the two, but both of them, if you think about it, are not necessarily desirable. And so that's where psychology, that's where some of these individuals, they approach the Bible in this way. They put you in an unresolvable position, which isn't correct. And so that's what we're going to look at. But let's look at the suspects. As we approach the Word of God... And we arrive at um, what is taking place here in the situation in Genesis 3. Let's look at some of the suspects, if you will, because if we're, we're um, given this dilemma of who to blame. First of all, we have the serpent. And the serpent, as it says in um, chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from the tree? In the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it, touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here we have the presentation of the serpent. Now, what do we know about the serpent? You know, we know what serpent is but we don't know what the serpent was like before the fall. And uh, we say, is this Satan? Is this, um, this beautiful creature? We, we learn a little bit about it. Well, honestly, that's a little bit irrelevant to the whole presentation. What we have is a serpent who presents himself. And some characteristics, first of all, we know that it was a created um, animal. Now, why is it important that this is a created animal? And the reason is because it was not a supernatural force or a supernatural cosmic force. If you're a Star Wars fan, or one Star Trek, or any of those, what you have is a, a belief system or a philosophy of dualism. Dualism is over here you have the cosmic, the good. Oh, you've got the force, the good. Over here, you've got a balance, an equally balance of evil. You know, the dark side. Oh. Okay? So, you know, you have the balance of each. In, in dualism, you believe that there's a, a cosmic good force and a bad force and balancing. And, and, you know, when there's more good, there's less bad, but there's, they're equal. They're equal in strength. It's not how the universe runs, I'm afraid to tell you. But um, there is an all-powerful God, as we learned earlier, the God who created this. But that's how sometimes we learn. And it affects our understanding of how even in heaven. Because if you think about it, you have a good side and a bad side. Or there's... Here's this little angel on your shoulder here saying to do this. On this side, you have the little devil that says, don't do that, do this. It's not an equal force. We don't have that. But if you believe in that, what often happens is then, wait a second, if my good outweighs my bad, 
then maybe I will get to heaven. Because you just have to kind of outweigh one or the other. And that reinforces some of that belief system. But here, the serpent is a created being, and that cosmic force, there is no good versus evil. So the, it is a created being, and God has permitted the serpent to be created. Next, we learn about the, the characteristic of the serpent, and he's cunning. We say he, we don't know, but it's obviously cunning. And Proverbs 12, 16, if you hold your spot and go to Proverbs, Proverbs has quite a few of these uh, little quotes and uh, gives us an idea of cunning. When we think of cunning, we often think of it as a cunning like a fox. There's a negative connotation that we have. But really, here cunning is talks about it being prudent, as it talks about in the New King James, or in the Holman Christian it says shrewd. Really, it's clever. So it doesn't connotate that this is a bad characteristic. It's simply a trait actually commendable and contrasted with the foolish. So in Proverbs 12, 16, it states, A fool's displeasure is known at once, and so here's contrast with the fool, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. Or that actually that word there is cunning. And um, in 13, 16, if we look at Proverbs 13, 16, just moving over a couple there, Proverbs 13, 16, and that states, it says, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. So there it uses the word prudent. And it's referred to in a positive sense, cunning. It's the same Hebrew word. But as we go to Job, go to Job 5.12. So back from Proverbs, Psalms, Job chapter 5.12, we see it in the negative usage. So Job chapter 5, verse 12. And uh, Job 5.12 says, He frustrates the schemes of the crafty so that they achieve no success. He traps the wise in their craftiness. So there it's translated as crafty. Or as we see in um, the um, New King James, it says, He frustrates the devices of the crafty. And so he uses the same word there. And it's used in a negative connotation. And the, it's actually pejorative in that this is a negative and refers to the craftiness of someone who is trying to deceive and scheme. So it can be used, as we think about it, either way, but he was cunning. But we also see in a negative connotation that he was calculated. And when we think of calculated, we think of a criminal who is methodical, but also um, calculated in that he thinks ahead of what he's going to do, and it's usually something um, bad. And here, calculated, verse 1, as we see back in Genesis, of what he does. We see the steps taken in that, first of all, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field, and God made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He presents a question, and he's calculated in the sense that what is his goal? What is his desire? And he's exaggerating God's commands um, in order to deceive. His goal is to really deceive the woman. And as we look at that, but also to deny God's consequence. If you look at verse 4, he says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not die. That is an outright lie. You shall not die. And so the deception there is, did 
Did Adam and Eve die right away? No, he didn't, actually. But did they die? Yes, there was. And even if you think about it, there was a spiritual death and a physical death. So Satan, in his craftiness, he was calculated because he could say this, and he really deceives the woman in trying to state this. And he was calculated. He knew how she, he, um, she would respond. But it's the same way in our own lives. If you think about the wiles, as he talks about, of Satan and, and the serpent here as um, Satan is associated with because truly behind this we have this. But the goal was to deceive and cause Eve to take the fruit. And he was successful. But let's look at the next suspect as we see, the woman. The woman, and the first thing we see in verse 3 is that she was confused because it says in verse 3, but of the, she says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she answered the question that was posed to her, but she actually misquotes God. And what I mean by that is that he, God said at the beginning, and it was handed down obviously through Adam, but if you go back, he does not say that you shall not, um, you are not to touch it. Nowhere in the text does it say that you are not to touch it. If you were to go back, it says, man, in chapter 2, and looking back. And it says in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it explains of what took place. He puts it in the garden. Takes verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat it, you shall certainly die. Now it's interesting because Eve says, you can't touch it, but God never said that. And I, she tries to, it's kind of um, a misquoting of what God said. And that's kind of interesting because we are of the nature, humanly speaking, of if you think about someone says, I don't want you to touch that. You say that to a child or anyone, and sometimes men, you know, they're the same way, but hey, don't touch that. What, what does a guy do? They'll look at it, you know, or a child, there it is. You know, walk around, oh, there it is, you know, and they're fine for a little while. I'll give an example. Let me make it real to you and the younger people. They did a study. They took the phones and they said, what I want you to do is, I don't want you to touch it. Put your phones over. You can't have it in the room. Don't touch it. But guess what? They were fine for a few minutes, but after a period of time, time passed, and all of a sudden, they hadn't come back. You know, and young people and others started looking at their phones. Sometimes it rang. There were some who didn't touch it, but for the majority of them, some went over checked their messages, went back, they had to touch it. It was just that compelling to them. Even though they were told they weren't supposed to have their phone or touch it, they went back. Humanly speaking, that's how we are. And if you think about it, that the will that was given them, it, they succumbed to it. But here, the whole point is, as we look at it, she was confused because she misinterpreted what God had said. Her intent was right, but it wasn't what God had said. So as we look at the next thing, was convinced. And she succumbed to the temptation. The temptation was there. Let me put that back so it's not a temptation to me either. But if you think about it, convinced. Succumbed to the temptation. And how does temptation arrive in our life? Is temptation wrong? Well, temptation is going to be all around us. It's not that we're tempted, but it's succumbing to the temptation and knowing our weaknesses. You know, if your weakness is chocolate, oh, I feel sorry for you because it's Valentine's Day and chocolate's all over. If your temptation is like bread or carbohydrates, or, you know, if your temptation 
is this or that, you know. We need to understand that, but stay away from that. But go to John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Hold your spot in the first John, if, way in the back, you know, the three Johns, Jude and Revelation. Sometimes it's easier to go to the back. But first John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. And just going to read that for you. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And here we have an example given in Genesis of how that is taking place. Because she was convinced she succumbed to the temptation. First of all, the tree. It looked good. You know, it's not like Satan or the, the serpent presented something that was ugly. It'd be easier. If food didn't look if food looked bad, you know, if it was maybe bad cafeteria food, ooh, I don't want to eat that, you know, you, we have no problem not avoiding it. But that's the problem. Some of the things that we don't want looks very inviting. But the tree looked good. And actually, I have a friend who's, a sh who's an artist, and even if you have a commercial TV, there's actually food artists where they actually make the food look good. You maybe go to a restaurant, the hamburger looks good. Well, you know what? They've actually done things to make the patty just right, put the butter on, and just make it look attractive. That's their whole job in front of a camera. But also they have artists who, they use these tweezers and on a plate, um, they make the food look attractive. That's their goal. Sometimes it doesn't even taste that good, but they make it look attractive. And they spend that time doing it. But also we find out that it tasted good. You know, if you've ever watched Food Network, it's, it may look good, but guess what? When it comes down to it, it's about taste. And then finally, we see it had no calories, right? The fruit had no calories, and it was paleo, and Weight Watchers approved, and, you know, it's, no, not exactly. But what happens is we see that it was selfish, um, selfish gain in the sense that there was going to be something received from eating that fruit, um, as you go back to the passage, it says in chapter, oh, sorry, I'm still in First John, so go to the other. In chapter 3, and it says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She took some of its fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband. So she was um, convinced that it looked good and all that was good. And it's, and it's interesting because to gain wisdom, the wisdom here was to know the difference between good and evil. Adam and Eve didn't really know what was best for them. And I'll express to you in the sense that in our eyes, humanly speaking, we see the past and the present. We think we know what's good for our future, and that's why we plan and prepare. But God, in his wisdom and um, omniscience, can see the past, the present, and the future. It's kind of one of those situations where, well, I don't know how I'll respond until I get there. You know, you go to a restaurant, well, I'm not sure what I'll order until I get there, then I'll know. And sometimes you're still there 20 minutes wondering what you're going to order. But God, in his omniscience, understands how we are. He knows our weaknesses, and he knows what's best for us. That's why some things occur in our life we don't always understand. We think that it's something that's punishing us. But it's not. It's simply something to help us to draw closer in our relationship with God, but also maybe prevent us from something occurring that would have. And so here, they were not able to understand, but they saw that, oh, this is something that is desirable to know the difference between good and evil. So here, they were innocent, 
they take that and a lot of people thought, oh, it, it, the fruit must have been an apple. And the reason is because in Latin, as the Bible is translated, coming up historically, the word for evil is malice, M-A-L-U-S, where in the word for apple is M-A-L-U-M. And so that's where you see the picture depicted, oh, it's an apple. It wasn't an apple. We don't know what it was. It was a fruit. So, but that's probably the reason. But the last thing we see is that she was committed, and she was committed, she engaged in that, took that, and she said, I need something that I do not have in order to be happy. You know, that's modern-day marketing. This is the goal of it, successful marketing, really, because she engaged in the act, she committed herself, and took of it and ate it. Next character we have is Adam. Okay, and here we have Adam, and uh, as we look at that, the first thing we see is compromise. So obviously you see the theme of C's, but compromise. And compromise simply means to reduce the quality, value, or degree of something, such as one's ideals. Sometimes you go through life and you're like, oh, I want to accomplish this or I want to have that. Then life happens and it's like we lower the standard, we compromise what our desires are. And that's the hard thing is that here Adam compromised. says that she gave some to her husband and he just took it. He knew the command because back in chapter 215, remember, the Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it, watch over it, and said, command it. The word is the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees. Look all around you. You can have it. But of this one tree, don't eat. What happens? You know, we don't know, and I'm not going to speculate. Sometimes there's those who speculate. But simply we know that she gave it to him. Um, she took the fruit, and there was something obviously different. It was desirable. And he knew that it was, it wasn't like Adam was strict. He's like, here, eat this quick. And he just eats it. He knew what he was doing, and he ate the fruit. And he compromised his, his values and his ideals, if you will. So that's the first thing. Second thing we see is the commitment. He committed in that he took the fruit and followed through and ate it. And maybe that's why men are so afraid of commitment. I don't know, but just kidding. But um, if you think about it, what occurred here is that he committed himself and took it as well. He, he didn't question it. He didn't look at it and say, hey, you know what? Wait a second, where did you get this? This is wrong. He just ate it. And then the last thing we see is the consequence for Adam. And the consequence here is of shame and the loss of innocence. And man and women are affected by the shame. Their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked, as we, as we read. Looking back, it says in verse 7, Then the Lord, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They knew they were naked, and this really distorted their relationship between one another and with God. Oftentimes we think about how it affected their relationship with God, but it also affected their relationship one with another. First of all, sin affected their sexuality one toward another. They're naked. You know, and th there's a reason why we don't go around naked. Um, the clothing, it covers us. There is a sense of shame. There's some who are exhibitionists and do that. But there's an understanding that this newly um, arrived aware state they're at, it drives them to find a solution themselves rather than turning to God. And the consequence of that is a shame. Oh, I've done something wrong. Instead of asking God for help, it's like now... What, was, what were they seeking? The difference between right and wrong. They understand wrong, but they try to fix it themselves and go find and cover themselves instead of turning to God who can actually help them in that situation. 
and it's broken their relationship with God. And so, now let's look at the last, uh, sus not suspect, but if you look at in the blame game, because we like to blame, the last individual who's called in is God. And what role does God have in this? Because in 3, 8 through 13, we see his response. Verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the evening breeze. Now, God wasn't walking through, okay? And what that is, that is a picture image of helping us to understand God, okay? And as it's written, it's, and translating it from the original languages, it, it really communicates, it's not that God was walking. Sometimes, see, God is walking. He can only be one place. That's not what's trying to be expressed. But what happens is God calls and questions the man. He calls out the man and gently asks for the man to come to him. And God was not limited in his knowledge or understanding. God is omnip omnipotent, all-powerful, but also omniscient, all-knowing. But he calls and questions. And we, un we, and we look at it, people who don't understand the Bible say, well, see, God doesn't know everything. He does, but there's a reason behind it. And sometimes if you think about it, the relationship between a parent and a child. A child thinks they know everything. They might say, where are you? It's kind of like the child who's hiding, you know, right here. If, I can't, if you, I can't see you, you can't see me. You know, that's how they think. <laughs> Obviously, God knows where they're at. And so God, he calls out, and the dialogue provides us a loving perspective of a gracious but just God. Because really, God says, where are you? Like he doesn't know where they're at. And, and the reason is it allows them to kind of lovingly come to them. Because, I'll give you an example. The difference between my wife and myself. Usually, my voice is a little higher, and sometimes I have a tendency to yell. I'll be honest, it just is. I'll say, where are you? And they're like, whoop, wait a second. But if Sean and my wife were to say, where are you, the kids, you know, it's, it's a different tone. But here, they understand, they're, they're fearful. But God, in his loving sense, says, where are you? Where are you? Asking, allowing them to respond and saying here. And what is their response? If you go to verse 8, you know, guess what did they do? They hid themselves. Where are you? And he said again. Um, the man says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the response is, wait a second. Who told you you are naked? And he said, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? He's again allowing them to respond to really repent, to say, guess what? I've done wrong. Instead of pushing them away and saying, you are punished, you are grounded, you are doing this, you are, you know, God doesn't do that. He could have said, guess what? You sin, bam, you're receiving a just punishment right now. He doesn't work that way. And it really helps us understand the mind of God, that how much he loves us and desires that we turn from our sin and come to him. Now, he's got to punish sin, as we'll learn about next week. But here you see the loving aspect of God where he says, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? God provides and seeks the confession rather than the condemnation of mankind. And I'm going to read um, John 3.16, which many of you know, but I just thought, I'm just going to read the whole context because oftentimes we quote John 3.16. You go to the baseball game, you see John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And sometimes that's all people know. But there's more to the story because it also says, for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, 
but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is the judgment. The light, Christ, remember back in John 1, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Hey, interesting. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may be not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So the error, as we look at this in going back to Genesis 3, is that these two do not exhibit acknowledgement of wrongdoing. They want to know the difference between good and evil, but they don't acknowledge that they've done wrong. And so what happens is the personal sin, they're both guilty. It's not God who designated and said, guess what, um, is the author of sin. These two are both guilty. And man bears the greater responsibility, if you think about it, and judgment. Adam becomes defensive. See, her response is, as we look at it, going through. It says, the man replied, did you eat from the tree? In verse 12, chapter 3, when the man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. He instantly places the blame on the woman. He could have said, you know what, I'm guilty. I knew I was wrong and I, and I ate. But he says, the woman you gave me did it. First of all, it's a woman's fault. And second of all, it's the one that you gave me. It's kind of to acknowledging that God, guess what? You're the one who gave her to me. Well, it's your fault. And it's a bit sad because you can still see that played out in today's society. And then the woman, she blames the serpent and also deceit. You know, the woman says, you, um, so the Lord God asked the woman, what is this have you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault. It's kind of like, um, you know, maybe the speeding ticket. Well, I didn't know. Deceived. She was tricked and deceived. But guess what? There's still the personal accountability that both of them don't take. And that's where we look at it. And it doesn't matter whether you believe all sinned in Adam or it was passed down throughout mankind. It makes no difference because really, as we look at the premise, remember the premise at the beginning of the message was um, who's guilty or who's to blame? That's not the right question we should be asking. We should be starting with the fact that Guess what? We're all guilty. Whether you're a male and female, whether you're a child, and understanding is that the fact is we must start with the, with the concept of idea that we, men and women, all mankind are guilty and sinful before God. And that's where the starting point is. It doesn't matter who's to blame because that's not the question. The question is we are all guilty and now what do we do? And Romans 5, 12 through 14 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sin. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin was not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression or sin. He is a prototype of the coming one in the sense of Jesus. He's, or excuse me, he's a prototype of the coming one who has become, you know, the comparison. Because of Adam's sin, God knew what was going to take place, and that's why he sent Jesus, because he knew that we would, sin would take place, but he also loved us so much that there was a plan in place. 
It's kind of like the little child. You know that there's going to do something wrong, but you also are going to be there to love them. Sometimes you have to let them make the mistake in order so they learn. And sorry, Riley, I don't like to use my kids as illustrations, so I promise I won't do it often. But my son, when he was younger, he stuck a pipe cleaner in a light socket. Okay, and if you know anything about electricity, it travels. Those are made of metal little fuzz. He had a track on his hand that um, left marks. And uh, when I came to him, I could have punished him for doing something wrong, because I, but I never told him not to stick a pipe cleaner in, his, in the light socket. But he did wrong, and I could have punished him and said, you know, you're grounded, you're going to be punished. But I looked at him, I looked at his hand, I said, you're not going to do that again, are you? There was no need. He understood his estate. He's like, you know what, that was wrong to do, it hurt, I'm not going to do that again. He understood his situation. And that's how it is before God. Understanding that we are guilty, and so therefore, how do we, what do we do with this dilemma that we are in, if you will? What do we do with this situation? Because instead of asking who's to blame, we should be asking, how do we resolve our current situation? We're guilty, and therefore, deserving punishment of sin, and we will be punished. What do we do? And that's where because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to purchase a place in heaven, which he offers as a free gift. He also sent the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to cause, help us to repent and to turn, into a, turn to a right relationship with him. And here's where I was talking even to young people about faith. Faith is not just, oh, if I have enough of this. It's where your faith is placed, the object of our faith. And it must be placed in Jesus Christ. So if you've never repented of your sin and never asked forgiveness and placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are separate from God's family. You are going to be eternally punished. There is a heaven and hell. There is whatever you believe. There is a punishment for that, that you will die and be separate from God eternally. And what I, but the hope that I want to express to you is that deferred blame does not remove the consequences of the guilty nor the opportunity for forgiveness. So if you advance that slide, what happens is it's important to understand. Right, yep. Deferred blame does not remove the consequences of guilty, nor the opportunity for God's forgiveness. There is punishment that's going to become for those because we're all guilty, but yet God also provided a forgiveness that our sins can be covered if we place our faith and trust in him. And that's really the hope and next week we're going to look at the consequences, but let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time we've had, and it is kind of a serious um, subject about sin. We all understand sin. We all understand that we're, there's a guilt, and we all have that, possessed. But what do we do with that? Because sometimes we measure our sin and our guilt based upon someone else. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as guilty as that person. But before God, we're all guilty and sinful. And there's only one remedy for that sin, and that is to be enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I ask you this morning, if you have never trusted Christ, if you never placed your, repented of your sins and, and placed your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would encourage you just simply say, you know, I've never done that. Slip your hand up, slip it down. I just want to pray for you. Because what happens is there is a punishment, there is a death that will occur. Thank you, I see the hand. 
What I encourage you this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, what you can do is simply through prayer. But a sincere prayer of faith, and not trusting yourself, simply saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I've done wrong. And I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive my sins and to purchase a place in heaven. And I place my faith and trust in you alone for salvation. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did, that is understanding that there's only one way to get to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ and not of yourself. And it's not the words that save you. It's not necessarily um, your behavior. But what it is, it's the act of placing your trust in another. You are entering into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. And a sincere trust, a childlike faith, is what will help you understand what it means to be forgiven. Because there will be a peace that only can come from God. And if you're here this morning, if you've never done that, there will be something inside that will will question. Maybe you're here today and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've turned away. Maybe you aren't necessarily following after his commands. Or maybe you're thinking about how I can be a part of the local church or grow in my relationship with him. I would encourage you today to be sensitive to that leading. And just as the piano plays quietly, I would just encourage you to think about a response. And that's what we're going to have after the message, a time of simply response. Maybe it's coming forward. Maybe it's coming forward to just simply pray. It's not time to be looking around, but it's simply a time of evaluating. This is your response to the Holy Spirit working in your life. Maybe you're at the point where you need to ask, um, confess your sin and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. I would encourage you to do that today. Or maybe you need help. Seek myself or one of the other individuals out. Just take a moment as the piano plays to simply evaluate and think about. We know we're guilty and we continue to sin, but what can we, how can we grow in our, in our spiritual walk? There'll be a time where um, in a little bit after the piano stops where you can respond through also in offering. And uh, maybe writing down a little bit. Maybe you are interested in membership or getting involved in the church. Maybe you made a decision to trust Christ. I would encourage you to just write that on your paper. Or maybe you need help in that. Put that on that communication card, rip it off, and put it in the offering this morning. But just take a moment as the piano plays, just to reflect. Amen. Thank you very much.